Hello, and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diokis to Yazdegur III. I'm Serial, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he, him. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 34, which the is Parthians. Mithridates the first. <laughs> yes, the first of the Parthians in a long, long line of Parthians. Oh, there are cool. many of them. Well, I assume this is going to go well then. Yes, this is not going to fail because, as I mentioned briefly last time, this is one of the two Mithridates that is the great. sometimes called Mithridates ah. the Great. So exciting! At the end of the episode, we get to decide if he deserves it. I've missed, or this. if he's overhyped. <laughs> missed. This. Antiochus the third was a good relief from yeah. a long line of just nonsense, and it's been a while since him. So, oh yeah, definitely. And just to give you a perspective in how little time has passed since Antiochus the Great. Mithridates was probably born during Antiochus the Great's reign. Yeah, I mean, like, we've had a bunch of members of the family, and so we've gone, like, brother, cousin, father, brother, son, like, all uh, within, like, two generations, essentially. Yeah, we've had like, a lot we haven't of really been, like, rulers. oh, a grandfather, a great grandfather, a great grandchild. No, it's been, like, two and a half generations. Yeah, exactly. And I've mentioned this on a previous episode, but this century here is the one with most successions throughout all the period of oh. history that I've looked I through see. so far. Oh, well. <laughs> so that means we got through the it's worst. It's a messy period. We got through the worst part, right? Uh, right? We're, we're still in <laughs> right? the worst part. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to make that meme now with Anakin and Padme. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is where we are right now. But we get to meet the Parthians, which is fun. So yes, I'm cool. excited. I couldn't remember Mithridates' name. And so I just wrote episode 34, The Parthians. So please tell me about I the mean, Parthians. That's not wrong. Okay, so let's start with a brief recap on what happened last episode, just so we have a memory of what was going on. So last episode, we looked at the brief reign of Vodfredad I, who was the king of Persis, which is one of the new little kingdoms that have popped up in Iran in the aftermath of the Seleucid collapse. Which is why we even considered him. Yes. And Vadfordad tried to govern Persis, and he essentially formed a coalition with Demetrius II, the new ruler of the Seleucid Empire, tried to fight back against the Parthians, failed, and eventually Persis was absorbed into the Parthian Empire. But in a sort of semi-independent capacity. Not really fully integrated, but it's basically a vassal kingdom to the larger empire. And that's what we had last time. And this time we get to explore what is the deal with the Parthians? Where do they come from? Why are they here? Why? Just in general. Just why? What's going on? Who are they? Please tell me. I want more information on the Parthians. So, well, first of all, let me ask you, what do you remember from the Parthians based on how they've been the story so far? Uh, uh, okay, so from our podcast, <laughs> I just remember, oh, the yes. Parthians, those people who are like on the north and around Mesopotamia-ish, they're sure getting stronger, huh? Oh, oh, wait, they're scary. Oh, no, they're coming this way. 
that's all I remember. Uh, because my memory I mean, is terrible. Fair. That's good. <laughs> uh, and just in general, I just know them as those guys, the enemy that we fight from, like, you know, very Western-centric Roman history kind of point of view. Yes. We'll get to have a lot of fights with those damn Romans. So please but enlighten me. For now, we need them to I'd meet. love to know more about them. So the people that we have been referring to and will refer to as Parthians find their origins in the steppes north of Iran and are descended from a group of people that are related to the Scythians or the Saka people up north. The people who killed Cyrus, remember ah, them. Yes. They've been making trouble for a while north of Iran. I do remember the dealing people who around. killed Cyrus, allegedly, because, you know, maybe, maybe yes, not. But... Yeah, eh, we don't know, but... Those people. I still need to remake that drawing. As of the recording of this episode, I still need to remake that drawing digitally because it had like a whole comic. <laughs> That's a good one. I Yeah, I'll work on it. Cyrus deserves it. Golden boy. Cyrus is good boy. But yeah, so these Parthians, they weren't originally called Parthians. They called themselves the Parni. It was a tribal group. They had this name and they were part of the greater series of different Scythian Saka people that lived in the area. Then, sometime around the reign of Seleucus II, when, remember, the Ptolemies took over Mesopotamia briefly, the east was in turmoil, everything was a bit messy, the Seleucid satraps in the east started to break away, so Bactria became its own kingdom, and also the satrapy of Parthia tried to become independent. Hmm. It is at this time that the Parni decide to make their move, because they see that everything is a bit unstable and what remains of the Seleucid Empire there, so they decide to take their own kingdom. Why not? So the Parni decide to invade this former satrapy of Parthia and make it their own kingdom. So, hooray, they're now called Parthians because they inhabit the satrapy of Parthia. And these Parni, who first moved into Parthia, were led by a man called Arsakis, who you'll want to remember as a name because every other ruler of the Parthian Empire is going to be called Arsakis. Counting usurpers, I think we get up to Arsakis the 50th, because it's, it's, it's a lot. 50? <laughs> what? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it took me a second to like process the number. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 50. Ah, it's a lot. Good. Because Arsakis becomes a title like Caesar or Augustus. Oh, I see. It's as if Constantine the Eleventh were Augustus the 171st. Yeah, okay. It's sort of because the numbers are weird. People keep choosing the same name because, ah, oh, this name carries with it the, the history, the, you know, the power. Yeah, pretty much. And the thing is that it's kind of frustrating for historians because on coins it only says Arsakis. Oh no. And you don't <laughs> Maybe know. Maybe it's the same person, if, you don't know. Yeah, you don't know if it's the same person, if it's like there's a usurper because the coin looks a bit weird, or if it's like this guy's father, or if his brother. It's very unclear. And the only time they use personal names like Mithridates is if there are either two kings at the same time co ruling. Or if there's some sort of usurpation or civil war. Uh. If everything is going well, quote-unquote, then they'll all have the same name and it's difficult to figure out what's happening. So that's going to be something we'll have to get used to, but 
for now, Arsaki's the first. Right. So, Arsaki's the first has a few legends related to him because, well, as you mentioned last time, the Parthians know the Iranian lore and they want to yes. sort of tie into it. Right. Because later kings, later Arsacid kings, as the name mm-hmm. goes, claim that Arsakis I was descended from Artaxerxes II, that Achaemenid king from back in the day who was rumored to have, like, about a hundred sons, so they're probably thinking, yeah, I assume one of these sons made it out somewhere. So that's one element they're going with. And another legend that is around Arsakis the first is that apparently it is said that he gathered with six other nobles to kill the former Seleucid satrap of Parthia and take over the kingdom, very, very much mirroring the story of Darius the Great mm. matching up with six nobles, the old Achaemenid Empire, to take down Bardia and make him the ruler. So there's a lot of vibes with them trying to follow in these footsteps. They're not fully identifying as the heirs of the Achaemenid Empire, but they're acknowledging that they're sort of stepping in their shoes. And uh, yeah, so once Arsakis the first conquers Parthia, the kingdom then develops. We have a mixture between the nomadic Parni people and the indigenous Iranians who just lived in Parthia. And they form this new mixed society with strong influences from both of their components, where we have that the Parni nobility will be governing, but they will have very strong Iranian influences and uh, inspirations, as we saw before. And then in the successive decades leading up to Mithridates I's reign, the Parthians tried to expand their domain during periods of Seleucid weakness, but they were seriously defeated during Antiochus the Great's Eastern Campaign, Mm. where they were forced to retreat back into Parthia proper. But, you know, since Antiochus the Great has died, the Parthians have slowly been expanding, slowly consolidating their power and making sure that everybody knows that, you know, they're a regional power at least. They're something that needs to be considered as effective, let's Mm. say. Now, let's... See Mithridates be born. Hooray, hooray. Finally, we caught up. We did it, folks. Yes, we caught up to our protagonist. <laughs> well, first of all, one of the things that disappoints me about the Arsacid dynasty is that Arsakis isn't the forefather of all the dynasty. Uh, he is just a branch, I, wh- which makes me sad. But why were we talking about him then? Because he founds the dynasty, but the throne then goes to his son... But then it just skips to a cousin. Oh, oh so no. all these kings aren't descended from the first guy. They're just a sidestep uh, well, of family. Well, I guess still family, right? So Somehow. It still counts, but it's like, oh, that's disappointing. Oh, well. But in any case, we have that Mithridates I was born sometime in the early 2nd century. To give you a Seleucid timeline, you know, reign of Antiochus III. And Mithridates was the son of the king of Parthia, a man called Phriapatius. And he was the second of three or four brothers. So not really expected to be the first in line of succession. Not really expected that he'll be king eventually. There are other people in the way. So what happens is that after his father's death in 176, Mithridates does not become king. It's his elder brother, Phraates I, 
who succeeds the throne and becomes the new ruler of Parthia. Now, Phraates is quite a warlike king, and he sees that things in the Seleucid Empire aren't going great, mm. so he takes the opportunity to invade some of their border territories. So he captures the province of Hyrcania, which is essentially the bit of Iran connected to the Caspian Sea, so expanding it a little bit to the west. And uh, then he tries some raids into media, nothing too serious, nothing huge, but just testing the waters to figure out, can we expand more, can we not, what's going on? And it's during his brother's reign that Mithridates is recognized by the nobility at large, and his brother in particular, hmm. as somebody who is very intelligent in general, and just very skilled at warfare and at being just a good governor and a good noble overall. Okay, we like this. You know, Yes. learn the things you need. Yeah, exactly. Now, Phraates, the king, has some children of his own. How do you think he reacts to his brother being very capable and skilled and intelligent? Well, I think he's going to feel very insecure that his brother, who is very capable and well-liked and actually good at ruling, or at least he thinks that his brother is better than him or better suited, uh, I think he feels insecure about this and he will try to murder his brother so that doesn't happen. Even though, you know, if you cared about the future of your country, maybe it would be like, ah, oh, this person would make a great ruler. Maybe they should rule instead of me. But, like, that hasn't happened in the history of anything, ever. So, how did the assassination attempt go? Well, Serial, it goes very poorly because he doesn't start one. He actually looks at Mithridates and says, you'd actually be pretty good at this. You'd be better at this than my children. How about you be my heir really? when I die? Oh my god! We yes! We are... <laughs> We have a good... Yes. I am so... I love... Yes. What I... <laughs> I'm so excited. We have someone with like... Yes. A bit of actual care for the job who is not just like, oh, I want all the power. I want all the power for like my family. I just... I want someone who is good at ruling to come after me so that the empire doesn't immediately just crash. I love this. How did the children take it though? <laughs> are they young enough that like it's fine or you know we don't know it looks like they are pretty young they're not okay. like full grown adults it looks like but eh, we'll see okay they might be a problem in some years yeah we'll see so on the succession we got a quote from one of our historians justin oh. who says that phraates chose his brother mithridates because and i quote more was due to the name of king than that of father, and that he ought to consult the interests of his country rather than those of his children. Yes! Yeah! Thank you! So, That's yeah, how you should that's rule! That's fair. That makes sense. And, yeah, and also, this is something that is new about Parthia compared to our previous rulership systems, is that their monarchy is elective in a way. Mm-hmm. You don't just automatically succeed because your father was king. You need the nobility to approve you. So how this works is generally that if you are a strong king with a strong adult heir that 
you trust and everybody recognizes somebody skillful, then you can probably just force the nobility's hand and say, yeah, no, this guy, he's my heir. He is capable. He's your next king. I mean, it is elective monarchy as far as any monarchy is elective in the sense of like, well, yes, you're supposed to choose like your descendants, but like you can appoint an heir. Like that was always allowed. Yeah, that's allowed, but people can get very I know, angry. I know. It's like if you're having cases. your wedding and you have to invite some people, but you don't really want them there. But if you don't invite them, then they're going to be mad. Yeah. Ugh. Like, you're free to not invite them to the wedding, but also, it's like, uh, do you want to deal with the aftermath? Uh, Maybe you do. Like a lot. I mean, some of I us mean, you might. want to watch the world burn. <laughs> yes. And the Parth nobility does occasionally. <laughs> Yeah, no, but cool to know that, like, it's more common. Yeah, exactly. And if you have a strong king, then he can generally appoint who he wants. Yeah. If your king isn't very strong or dies with an underage heir, then more often than not, the nobility will just choose somebody who they think will do a better job. And they'll just get together and decide, you, you're the new king. That makes sense. If you're a strong king, you say what you want and people will be like yes we respect your wishes if you're not then you get told who to appoint i guess yeah pretty much now the advantage of this is that usually you don't end up with an incapable child ruler because the nobility is just gonna choose somebody who can do the job and you generally get you know a minimum of quality at least in your kings they have to at least be accepted by someone Mm -hmm. The downside is that sometimes the nobility doesn't agree on who should be the next king, and that causes a lot of yeah, problems. Yeah, as always, because, you know, you need to get a lot of people to agree on something, which, it's difficult. Yeah, it's very messy, but for now, good news, Mithridates has been chosen as a capable king. Hey, Hooray! Everyone liked that. Yes. And in 165, Phraates dies, and... Mithridates is crowned as king without any opposition. Hooray! He is now in charge of the kingdom. So where does he go? What is his plan? Well, Mithridates sees that, well, the Seleucid Empire is currently under Antiochus IV, so it's still pretty strong. It's not crumbling yet. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's not invade it now. Let's strengthen our power base elsewhere. So what he does is he looks to the east of Parthia. And to the east is their fellow sister breakaway from the Seleucid Empire, Bactria. And what happened in Bactria recently? Well, they'd recently invaded all the way to India and taken Punjab and the Indus Valley. So they'd become very powerful. But the problem is that at that point, they just split into two. So a usurper took over Bactria and... The legitimate king was left in India with that bit of the kingdom. So seeing all this mess, Mithridates decided to attack the usurper and take that bit of Bactria for himself. Mm-hmm. As one does. And we see that that worked very well because Mithridates managed to take all the western part of Bactria for himself. And the eastern part he just keeps as a vassal state that is loyal to him now and pays taxes to him. So Mithridates has basically doubled the size of his kingdom in a few short years. So, great plan, good start. And so this was achieved both thanks to Mithridates being like a good general and a good leader, mm-hmm. because 
he is the first who's able to do this. But also, this gives us the opportunity to look at how the Parthians did war. How do they fight? Yeah. How it's different than anyone else. Well, they remember their nomadic roots. And uh, the Parthians are mainly a cavalry-based people who concentrate their strategy on speed and maneuverability of their forces so that they can quickly defeat slower-moving infantry enemies, which is especially good for infantry-based people like the Hellenistic kingdoms, the Seleucids, and all their their associates. You know, the typical Seleucid strategy is you have a big, strong phalanx in the middle, which serves to pin down the enemy infantry, cavalry on the sides to go and stab the enemy in the back once they're pinned down by your infantry. Now, the Parthian strategy is to have a ton of horse archers and heavy cavalry. So what they do is that they lure the enemy cavalry away with the horse archers. They shoot them from a distance, then Mm -hmm. try and get them away from the main army. And once they're away from the main army, they smash into the enemy cavalry with their own heavy cavalry, Mm -hmm. and that destroys the enemy cavalry. I like that we can see how different armies have developed different strategies and how much it changes once they get to cross paths with each other and how really a different kind of fighting, like purely just a different method of transportation or different weapons or different, just a different, Mm -hmm. yeah, a different formation can have like a huge impact. Like it's not so much how Mm -hmm. well your fighters fight, but just how you're going about this one enemy in particular and like if it mixes well or not. And this is also why, for example, the Bactrians tended to have Hellenistic armies, but with a lot more cavalry to counteract these nomadic Mm -hmm. tactics. And the fun thing about having a Parthian army against a mainly infantry group is that you can just shoot them full of arrows from a distance and they can't touch you. And if they try to run after you, they get isolated and you can just slam into them with your heavy cavalry and destroy them. So they're just sitting ducks unless they have a good enough cavalry to be able to make their way around you. Cavalry against cavalry. Yeah. But also another way in which the Parthians can be defeated is cleverly using terrain, which is what Antiochus the Great did when he passed through. Mm. Because cavalry tends to work very well and be well maneuverable in open plains and areas where you can move around freely. If you place them against mountains, rivers, things that are difficult to deal with, then you can trap them and fight them with your infantry or fight them in a way that's more to your advantage. Right. But yeah, so we have that the Parthian forces worked very well against Bactria, and Mithridates manages to win and expand his empire into something that is looking quite more considerable, is taking up most of the northern border of the Seleucid Empire now. So, what happens now? Well, at this point, by the time he's taken Bactria, well, Antiochus IV is dead, There's been one civil war with Philip. There's been another civil war with Demetrius. There's been another civil war with (laughs) Alexander. Things are becoming messy, (laughs) as you can see. So messy are they that Mithridates sees his chance and he decides to take a stab at Media. Media is directly to the west of the Parthian Empire right now. So he invades and conquers Media in 148. Mm -hmm. 
And as we saw in Alexander's episode, he manages to then continue advancing all the way into Mesopotamia, where he is recognized as king in Uruk in 141. Oh. Remember Uruk? Yes, I do. From back in the Gilgamesh. Literally the first city ever. Yes, it's still around. It's not the biggest city, but hey, it's nice to have it there. And then after that, Mithridates manages to march into Seleucia on the Tigris and Babylon, conquer them both, and there he is crowned as king of kings in a grand ceremony in Seleucia, hmm. showing that there's a new boss around and it's not the Seleucids. Yeah. Turns out. Yeah. <laughs> And as you said before, it is deliberate that he's calling himself a king of kings. He isn't just following the typical Greek idea of just being a great king. He is, no, king of kings now, Yeah, as in the typical tradition. I appreciate that, actually. Because yeah, it's nice. if you are going to invade somebody, like, might as well at least research who they are, you know, and their history and care about <laughs> them instead of just being like, yeah, we're just passing through here. We just want to, like, add military pressure and terrain, but without actually caring about the people who live in said terrain and money, I guess, because taxes. That's why it's lucrative, I guess, or because of the things that you can get mm -hmm. from the land. Like, I appreciate when someone is interested in ruling, you know, the yeah. people. That Does a good job. <laughs> it's... You know, debatable, the different systems that you can use for ruling. But, like, at least you should care. <laughs> yeah, you should at least try. <laughs> Unlike Alexander Balas, you should make a minimum of an attempt. Yeah. And, well, just to piggyback on what you said, how do you think Mithridates behaves towards the Macedonians and Greeks in his empire now? Because now that he's conquered Mesopotamia... He has a lot of Greeks and Macedonians mm -hmm. in his empire, all the former yeah. colonies of the Seleucids, all the big cities they founded. Like, a lot of the urban population is Hellenistic. Right, of course. So, what do you think he does? Does he do kind of like what Cyrus did and just, like, adapt to each culture? He does. Yeah, I like him. Finally. <laughs> I'm yes, so He's glad. a good dude. He realizes that he can't rule without the Greeks. He can't, you know, murder all of them. I, listen. <laughs> and get along what? with that. Why would that even be an option? No. I mean... Uh, it, you, you're not used. a ruler if you have no people to rule over. Yeah, what? yeah, my dude. It's going to happen. Oh, great. Future. Ah, hate that. <laughs> yeah. But for now, Mithridates adopts the epithet, the Philhellene, which is the friend of the Greeks. And he has his coins stamped with Greek lettering, saying that he is friend of the Greeks. And interestingly enough, we can see a clear change in the coins that he has, because as a young man, he displays himself as a very traditional Parthian with a soft cap and an archer with a bow. Mm -hmm. But later on... He instead presents himself as a Hellenistic king with a nice diadem and Heracles on the back of the coins. But he does still have a nice traditional Iranian beard to make sure that he's combining the different souls of his empire. Because, you know, the Seleucids have been here for over 150 years. That's not an 
a negligible influence mm-hmm. on the area. So it's important to keep it in mind and keep it around. But yeah, so now Mithridates is king of kings in Seleucia. And he sees that the Seleucids are breaking up in their civil mm-hmm. wars. So he can dedicate himself to the rest of his empire. He doesn't just look at Mesopotamia. Because Jessica comes over oh. to Mithridates and says, Hello, your new king of kingness. We have news from the east. There are so, so, so many nomads attacking us. Please help. Do you mind popping over and helping us not die? Thanks. Love the eastern provinces. Mm. Well, what happened? Yeah. Why suddenly so many? Yes. Well, we need to look east of Parthia. Do you know what's east of Parthia, Serial? No. What is the east of Parthia? Well, to the northeast of Parthia, we have the steppe. Right. Where there are a lot of steppe people. Yeah. That's where Famous steppe people. You know, if there's nomads, the steppe people will be there. Move further to the east, there's Mongolia. That's in turmoil. Mm. Why? The Mongols. Look further to the east. Oh, look! China exists now! Oh, oh my goodness! That's entirely destabilized the steppe. Oh, I see. You know, when you said, what's to the east of Parthia? <laughs> I didn't know that you meant, like, what's literally the entire world to the east of Parthia? Yes, basically. Because the steppe is a massive conveyor belt for humans. And if you do something on one side, the other side will notice. Oof, okay. So what happened is that China is born... It was born under the Qin Dynasty, from which we get the name China. Then those were quickly overthrown, and the Han Dynasty is being born, and they're essentially the Chinese equivalent of the Roman Empire Mm. in both chronology and vibes. Oh, I see. And what happened is that now China has upset the balance of power with the Xiongnu Confederacy, which are, according to certain theories, the ancestors of the Huns, with Attila and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Yes, those, those people. Huns. Yes. And, well, now the Xiongnu have been pushed out of their part of China. And so they're pushing out a different people called the Yuezhi. And the Yuezhi are pushing further west. And they're pushing around the Scythians, or the Saka, just north of Parthia. Uh, everything's going great, basically. Yes. And so all these people are just slamming into the newly formed Parthian Empire and trying to get their lands. You know, they're being chased by scary people. They want to be able to settle in the empire. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole massive domino effect from the Pacific all the way to middle Iran. Well, Mithridates, however, is a very capable general and... He is not a quitter, so he (laughs) manages to push back the nomads and ensure that the eastern border of his empire remains stable enough that can worry about the Sokka in the future, in future episodes. But for now, he's dealt with it. Good. Great. We love that. So, good job. Cross it off the to-do list. Yes. But then he gets another letter. Jessica comes over and says, "Uh, thanks for solving the east. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have problems in the west now. Do you mind? Oh, no. So after this huge mess, which like, I don't know how they tackled solving the East because it feels like a huge problem because, you know, there's a lot of ripple effect going on. 
yeah. and it's like, cool, you did that, huh? Here's some more. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, fun. Hooray. Because apparently we found out that the Seleucid King Demetrius II had a new civil war against the son of Alexander Balas and lost the coast of the Mediterranean. So Demetrius is now thinking, if I take back Mesopotamia, that will give me enough money and power to be able to fight my way back west and take the Mediterranean back. Mm. All in the service of the endless pit of civil wars. So, as we saw last time, Demetrius sends letters to all the minor kings in Iran and says, Hey, I'm gonna fight the Parthians, do you want to join me? And a lot of these local kings do. So, as we saw last time, Badfordad hmm. joins up, and there's this large coalition of Seleucid and other Iranian forces versus the Parthians. Mm -hmm. Now... Mithridates is busy, so he doesn't have time to deal with this personally. He is in the east fighting nomads to ensure his empire doesn't collapse as soon as it was formed. So he sends his brother, a man called Bagassus, mm -hmm. who may have also been his son. It's unclear. We don't know how uh, exactly. Family it works. member, close family member. Yeah, close family member. Eh. But fortunately, Bagassus takes after Mithridates because he is a very capable general and he takes control of the Parthian forces and leads them off into Mesopotamia to fight Demetrius. Now, this was a pretty serious danger because Mesopotamia and the Western conquests of Mithridates had only been taken in the last half a decade and most of the population, or at least the powerful population, was made out of Hellenistic people. Mm -hmm. So they'd be likely to just easily slide back into the Seleucid Empire and not mm -hmm. really care about Parthia. So things get a little bit concerning when Demetrius marches into Mesopotamia and recaptures Babylon. And there he manages to regroup with all the smaller Iranian states. But this could also just be part of the typical Parthian tactics of run away and make the other people think they're winning, and then when they let their guard down, stab them in the back. Because when Demetrius is heading out past Babylon, he is supposedly caught in an ambush by Bagassus, Mithridates' brother, and so serious is this ambush that the Seleucid army is destroyed, the local Iranian armies are destroyed, not only that, but Demetrius himself is captured, taken in chains, and sent by mail to Mithridates to do with as he pleases. Yeah, I remember this. This is how we finished, almost how we finished last week's episode. Yes, close. Well, what do you think happens to Demetrius now? Well... How do you think Mithridates treats I, him? Mithridates doesn't give me the vibe of the... Was it the Assyrians who are the scary ones? Yes, the like, Syrians are He doesn't give ones. me, you know, especially since he has proven to be a good leader who cares about doing a good job as a ruler. Like, he strikes me as a smart and leveled person, so I don't think he would just, you know... Especially if he's gotten Demetrius, like, delivered to him yeah. alive. Like, I don't know what he's going to do, but I don't think he's just going to be like, oh, I will kill you now, bye. Like, that would be such a waste of everything. Um, or torture him, you know, or do something horrible. I also don't think they're going to be best buddies, but, you know. Well, you'd be surprised, because 
we are told that, well, first of all, Mithridates asked for Demetrius to be paraded around all the Hellenistic cities in Iran, basically, showing everybody... The the Seleucids have fallen low enough. Like, nobody... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, sure. That makes sense. Yeah, this is basically just showing everybody, hey, look, look what happened to the Seleucids. Yeah, truly. They're not the boss anymore. We're the boss. Okay, is that clear to everybody? Great. Have a good time. And then Demetrius is brought all the way to Mithridates himself. Mm -hmm. And Mithridates... Offers him a palace and his daughter's hand in marriage. Oh my god! <laughs> and says, "You just be good. Seriously, and stay friendly." His cool. own daughter's hand. Yep. What? I mean, like, like I told you, I thought he would be benevolent and like maybe give him like a little state where he could live the rest of his days. But like, what is going on? Did he like the nope. guy that much? Like, what is Mithridates? Princess and explain. Hooray. What about Demetrius? I mean, like, this is the better Demetrius in the sense of this is not Demetrius the first. So Yeah, no, this this guy. Is uh, <laughs> so maybe he was cool. I you know. I mean, there are theories as to why he's doing this. Please enlighten me. Well, first theory is that Mithridates is just keeping Demetrius good because well, if the Hellenistic people in his empire see that Myth Demetrius is being well treated, well, they're gonna say, oh. Looks like our new overlords are actually pretty good, and yeah. they're not horrible yeah, I mean, murderers. Yeah, kind of like what Cyrus nice. did, right? Like, yeah, this whole much. benevolent king spiel. Yeah. The other theory, which is a little bit more manipulative, mm -hmm. is saying that, well, if Mithridates ever feels like invading Antioch and conquering Syria, he's going to need a puppet king to put, and there. that puppet king might as well like him. That's, so, yeah. if Demetrius is his friend and is tied by marriage, that makes him the perfect puppet. That is fair. That is very fair. And really, I do not have anything against that. Like, I think it's just a good idea. Um, yeah, it's just a good idea. <laughs> and not plan. particularly, like, well. evil either. I mean, you're just treating a guy really well. Yeah. It's like, like, oh, cool. And it's just like, okay, I treat you nicely now. And then if I need you, like, you will not double cross me. Because why would you? Like, is it really manipulation if you're truly just being nice to people? Like, sure, you might have ulterior motives or, like, secondary intentions. But, like, it's not the worst I've seen. I mean, there are definitely worse ways to go. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, you could be Alexander Balas and be just... A Ptolemaic puppet. Yeah, or you could, you know, you could have your family taken hostage from you. And if you do anything, oh, they will be killed. Like something like, you know, you can assert pressure on someone. <laughs> yeah, Mithridates but this is, is just giving like, Demetrius a family. Yeah, it's just like, okay, um, you won't double cross me because you won't have any reason to. Like, that's just, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's like, I am literally your best bet if you want to become king again. So, deal? Good. So, that's nice. Hooray! In the meantime, just P.S., Antiochus VII, the other son of Demetrius I, yeah. now becomes king by proxy right. in Antioch. But we know that he won't do that well, because we're not following that dynasty anymore. I mean, he's not going to do beyond a certain amount of well. Yeah. We'll meet him, don't worry, but it's not reconquering everything. Yeah, no. But yeah, so now at this point, Mithridates has some mopping up to do. So he goes around taking over those 
minor Iranian kingdoms that sided with Demetrius. So he goes over to the kingdom of Persis, where he installs Vodfordab II as his ruler. And then he takes a few other minor kingdoms. And interestingly enough, what he does is he has this sort of federal system where, yes, Parthia and the Parthians are supreme, but they tend to have a lot of other kingdoms beneath them that they're semi-independent. Mm -hmm. And the advantage here is that, well, you don't have to deal with the hassle of ruling these places. And you just need to deal with one person. You just need to deal with the local ruler. You don't have to deal with all the little cities and, oh, what problem does the city have? They need to deal, da 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 da, da. That's a whole mess. Mm -hmm. The only thing you need to worry about is, oh, is my vassal king loyal? Yes, perfect. Don't need to worry about anything. That's great. I see. Also, it makes things easier to conquer because if you go up to a guy and say, hey, you can remain king, just pay taxes to me now, they're a lot more likely to accept as opposed to saying, hey, give up your throne to me now. Yeah. So that makes conquest faster and easier to manage. So that's also another good plan. True. So now in his old age, Mithridates controls the majority of Iran and he has lands from the Tigris River all the way to the Indus. This is the largest empire we have seen since the golden days of the Seleucids. So everything is going absolutely brilliantly. Wow. However, all would not go perfectly well for Mithridates, because in 137, it seems that he was struck by some sort of... Lightning? Not, <laughs> Sorry. not really. Almost, perhaps. <laughs> he was struck by some sort of major illness. Oh, no. We're not sure what it is. Maybe it was a stroke, um. something of the sort. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. We were cut short of his greatness. Yeah, but he still manages to rule a while because he appoints his brother Bagassus, the one who fought off Demetrius in the first place, mm -hmm. as his, not exactly a regent, but essentially his representative, let's say. Okay, yeah. So Bagassus does a reasonably good job. He rules the empire, consolidates what he can. But then in 133, there is a new attack. There is a coalition of the kingdom of Elemais, to the west of Persia, and Karakine, which is essentially the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates, that bit of Mesopotamia, who have collected themselves together to try and take over Mesopotamia okay. and form sort of a third pole between Parthia and the Seleucids. So they fight, they invade, and it seems like they maybe managed to briefly take Babylon at one point, but Bagassus is a capable general and managed to kick them both out of the kingdom again and save Mesopotamia once again like he had done originally. He also answers this threat furthermore by invading Elamis and defeating them near Susa and installing a new Parthian-friendly king in 132, making sure that Elamis is now also a new vassal kingdom of the whole empire. Mm -hmm. But this point is where we sadly need to say goodbye to our friend Mithridates Aww. because... In 132, he passed away and left the throne to his son, okay. a young man called Phraates II, who may have been a minor at the time, because in his first few years, he has his mother ruling together okay, with so him. Okay, so maybe he was too young. 
So slightly younger. He's not like a five-year-old, yeah. but might have been like 14. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. So, yeah, that is the end of the reign of Mithridates I. Maybe Mithridates the Great. I mean, that was pretty cool. What do you think about it? I enjoyed this. Lots of accomplishments. Very interesting. And honestly, I like how he goes about things. I liked his way of ruling. So, yeah, this was very fun. Very refreshing after our last, <laughs> like, the three episodes. It's refreshing to build an empire after having to fall around you for a <laughs> but while. But also mostly just like being a nice ruler. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure he did many awful things as well. But like, at least whatever details we get to go over, he's taking the better, more diplomatic approach, which I appreciate. Yeah, he's trying at least to be conciliatory, be helpful, be a good ruler, effectively. So, yeah, we'll have to see how his heirs fare, if they manage to keep it up, if they mess everything up. But that'll be for next time. Uh. For now, are you ready to rate him? Yes, let's do it. So our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? Uh, uh, I mean... Eh, not terribly. Not I mean, we most. have that he has a stroke at one point, yeah. remains somewhat debilitated that he needs a semi-regent for five years and then he just passes yeah, away that was interesting but not that interesting i like and the also detail. he passes away in like his 70s it yeah. looks like thereabouts so it's pretty good yeah, cool. <laughs> better than what we've had so far i'd give him a three a three because of having the extra details of like oh he had a stroke and appointed mm -hmm. this regent ish you know co-ruler yeah. Which was a shame, you know, that it happened, but such is life. Mm -hmm. And then he passed on out of old age, which, you know, at a reasonable old age. And, well, I guess at two, you know, two points for those two bits of information. Otherwise, the death itself, eh, not that interesting. Okay, I was just counting. Mm -hmm. And I found out that this is our first natural death in 20 Kings. Yeah, that's why I was like, you know, <laughs> I'm glad that he didn't get murdered. Yeah, honestly, now that I've counted this, I was going to go for a two. I'm pumping it up to a three yeah. because, wow, death by natural causes. Congratulations, man. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I'll go back to a three that then. That never happens. That's the last point I needed. So there we go. Perfect. So with a three and a three, we get a three out of ten for final moments. Next category is battle hardness. How good was he at war and conquest? Well, he did a lot of very impressive things here. So, first of all, he was noticed as a capable military leader under his brother. Right. Frates I, so that's good. Showed some promise early on. Then he conquered Bactria at the start of his reign. Managed to make that part of his empire. He then moved to the west, conquered Media, conquered Mesopotamia. Made that part of his empire. Then he moved all the way to the east of his empire, fought back the nomads that were pushing against his borders, made sure that everything there was secure. And then at the same time in the west, he managed to beat back a coalition of Seleucids and other Iranian peoples. That was very impressive. He then managed to mop up a few of the minor kingdoms, including Persia. And then under his brother, he managed to push back this force of Elimais and Karakine, 
that was attacking Babylonia, and not only that, managed to conquer all of Elamais. And so he started with a kingdom that was just a tiny little thing at the edge of Iran. Mm-hmm. Now he owns all of Iran and Mesopotamia. Yeah. Impressive. That's pretty good. Come on. That's very nice. Unfortunately, we don't get too many details on how exactly he did everything. Yeah. But I think it's definitely worth a good amount of points. What were you thinking, Serial? Yeah, I mean, if we don't give them to him, who are we giving points to? (laughs) (laughs) So I, again, lose context of like what I've given other people. But I'm feeling between Mm -hmm. a seven and an eight. Okay, let me see who you gave a seven and eight. You gave an eight to Cyrus the Great. Yes. To Artaxerxes the Third, and you did not give a seven out. So yeah, I think I'm going to go for a seven because it doesn't feel as big as what Cyrus or Artaxerxes did. Yeah. Just because one, we don't have that many sources to like actually see how he did it, and two, like mm-hmm. I guess it's just a bit less territory but like that doesn't necessarily mean it's worse yeah it's not so impressive like visually speaking i guess geographically Mm -hmm. but still very impressive especially knowing what he started with you know yeah i think i'm going to go with an eight actually because i think it works well and it reminds me of what syaxaris did in turning media into an empire He's also turned Parthia into an That empire. is very fair. So I feel like it's worth an 8. Then I will go for an 8 as well. Okay. I have no reason fair to enough. stay with a 7, if you agree with me. <laughs> yeah, no. Makes sense. So with an 8 and an 8, we get a 16 out of 20 for battle hardness. Hooray. Next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and subterfuge? Uh, there isn't much in scheminess. <laughs> gotta say. He was very... Very clean and straightforward. Um, the only thing I can think of for scheminess that could make sense is if you want to consider the whole treating Demetrius nicely. I knew you were going to bring it up and that, I don't, I don't, I really don't think that yeah, is like particularly uh, yeah. a schemey move. I think that's just yeah. good logical, like... I don't think he was trying to hide anything from Demetrius, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to grasp at straws here to see Did if this ever happen, by point, the way? I forget. Spoilers. I, I, but there we are, are through episodes. his life. Okay. Demetrius is still around. I know, I know. He's going to be around I mean, for a while I mean, we're through Mithridates' life. Oh, it, I mean, it didn't happen under Mithridates. Okay. Let's say that. Okay. Fine. I but guess, Demetrius is still around, and we'll, find we'll see if any successors make use of him. But yeah, Scheminus, I don't think I can give him anything. Uh, yeah, no. So I'm going to stick with the zero. Yeah, I agree. So we get a zero and a zero, which makes a zero out of 20 for Scheminus. Next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? I mean... Impressive uh, more than shocking. Yeah, I don't think it's so much shock as it's just like sort of the opposite of shocking. It's, you know, he marches into Hellenistic yeah. cities and says, Hi, you can keep your customs. I'm actually a friend of the Greeks. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, weird. That never happens to us. <laughs> never happened before. Yeah, he just 
takes Demetrius and instead of skinning him alive or something, yeah. he says, yep, have my daughter in a palace. Like, I oh, mean, that was a bit, what? that was a little bit shocking. <laughs> Is this happening? <laughs> I, listen. I feel like that's worth one point. Yes. I'm going to give it just because, what? Because he didn't, that, that's he impressive. didn't only give him, you know, like, okay, I'll give you a comfortable position or no, no, no. He was like, my own daughter. I'm like, <laughs> are you sure? Mithridates is my friend. Uh, what? What are we doing? Uh, interesting. What is going on just now? Yeah. So beyond that, uh, I mean, again, very grasping at straws. You can put the fact that he's succeeding his brother when his nephews are still alive. But that's like, are the Parthians themselves yeah. shocking? They're not shocked. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is a thing that we do. Eh, otherwise... There's not much else, honestly. It's just fairly mm. sensible rulership being nice. I'm giving him the one point. I'll give point. him the one point yes. for treating Demetrius outrageously well. Yes. But one thing is to be kind. Yeah. Another thing is to like give your own daughter in marriage to this guy. Um, yeah, exactly. But I guess. We'll see if it works. So, yeah, with a one and a one, we get a two out of 20 for shock factor. Our next category is Aaron Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular? Well, good. Pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> He's At unified last. Iran. It's the first time we have an Iranian king ruling over all of Iran on his own in 150 years. So that's impressive. That's very good. For his empire, he manages to take it from a minor insignificant thing to the power in the region. Yeah. Like, it's still not fully consolidated. There's still some kinks that need to be worked out, but the main part is going very well. He also is nice to the Hellenistic population. He shows himself as a Hellenistic ruler to them, but with Iranian characteristics. Yeah. There is this whole founding mythology where he goes about calling himself King of Kings. There's the descendants from Artaxerxes II. All that sort of stuff where he's you know, trying to mix the different elements of the people who live in his empire. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty impressive. He manages to fight back the nomads in the east. He holds them at bay. He holds the Seleucids at bay. He's holding the empire in order. He is managing to appoint his brother as regent when he realizes he can't rule on his own anymore. Yeah. He has a nice clean succession. He's just, he knows how to do the stuff. He is really, yeah, like, level-headed, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Like, yeah, just logic and, and good at what he's doing. Yeah, it's just doing a very good job. With whatever circumstances, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the beginning of his reign, it wasn't going to necessarily be Parthia that took over. Yeah. Like, it could have just been Persia that decided to make their own empire. He makes it so that Parthia is the one in charge yeah. here. Parthia takes this vacuum of power that the Seleucids are leaving behind and takes over. Yeah. So that's very impressive. I'm trying to think of what demerits to give him, if any. None. What are you talking about? I say on the one downside I can see is that he isn't vastly reforming what he takes over. He's mostly just leaving everything in place. If it ain't broke... Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of broke. Yeah, okay, but... 
I mean, you know, everything's shattered in a million pieces. We also have, like, a lot going on. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot going on. He doesn't really have, no spoilers, but doesn't have too much time to do everything that he does. I assumed. He is sorting things out. He isn't doing a Darius the Great where he's reorganizing everything yeah. and making it perfect. But we but were also like fighting for the that steppe when people he's building and, yeah. the empire. Yeah. Like right now we should focus on not going to <laughs> Yeah, I mean like for the first time Iran has solid leadership. Yeah. And somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, I'm very torn between a 9 and a 10. I don't know. I'll give him a nine because you are right. He didn't do the like, if he did what Darius had done and like reform things as he went, that would have been a 10. Cause I'm like, I don't know what else. Like I yeah, literally that, like that would be perfect. perfect full marks. I feel like a nine. It's still reflective of like how well he did. Yeah. I feel like I'll join you. I know what's coming up. <laughs> There's somebody who deserves a 10 more than him. Whoa. But still very, very impressive. Can't wait to meet them. So with a 9 and a 9, you get an 18 out of 20 for Aaron Shine, which is the best score since Artaxerxes III, who also got an 18. Yeah, that... And the only people who beat you are Darius the Great, Cyrus the Great, and Cyaxares. That sounds about right. <laughs> Actually, pretty hardcore. And I'm a fan. So good job, Mithridates. You deserve it. Okay, next category is face of faces. What do you think this man looked like? Oh god, okay, give me a minute. I will tell you now that we get two coins, one from the beginning of his reign, one from the end of his reign, showing how he uses his iconography depending on who he's ruling over, and it's very cool. Nice, I love that. Yes, I love these things. Okay, (laughs) sorry, I'm just so excited. Also, beards are back in fashion. Oh, nice. We can all enjoy that. I get to dive into what the heck Parthians looked like. Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing. I did. Let me pick it up and describe it to all of you. Not that interesting, but, you know, we're going low effort today. I do what I can. (laughs) Okay, very nice. I like this. So we have our nice Mithridates... Dressed up in traditional Parthian clothing. We get to have new clothing now, listeners, because we have pants, first of all. Hooray. That's great. Hooray, pants. These look like very nice, comfortable, freely flowing pants, so that's even better. There is something that looks like a bit of a robe on top as an outfit. He then has a nice, well-groomed beard and mustache, a diadem holding back some... Long-ish hair, not terribly long, but, you know, relatively long there. He has a nice recurve bow in his hand and sort of has a halo around him of good kingliness. Yes. Showing that he is a good boy. He does a good job. So, yes, thank you, Serial, for the <laughs> You're nice welcome. portrait. And listeners, if you want to look it up, go to the website. It's linked in the description of the episode, or you can just find it connected to our socials and now serial let me show you what he looked like so what i'm going to show you are two coins the one on the top row is young mm-hmm. mithridates at the start of his reign okay front and back coin the bottom is at the not exactly the end but further on in his reign when he's conquered a lot of greek 
speaking areas. Hmm. So here we go. Let me know what you think. Oh, cool. I love... Yes. Okay, these coins have so much detail. <laughs> but also <laughs> I just love... I love having both coins and being able to compare. That's great. The before and after is very fun. I like yeah. it a lot. So the first one has what I assume is a more of a Parthian headpiece. Yep. Right? So it's a fun hat, kind of triangular, like conical on top. And then it has like a hood that goes all the way on the sides of the face and on the back with an opening for, I assume, the ears or like at least the bottom of the ears. Mm -hmm. And it's a clean shaven man with a prominent nose, like a hooked nose, which I really like. Facing to the left and with big eyes. And then on the flip side of that coin, we can see him holding a bow. Again, hooray, sitting on some kind of stool and wearing a tunic and pants. The same headpiece. A nice traditional archer motif yes. that we have in these Iranian And coins. it says, I assume, the name... It says Arsaku. It's basically of Arsakis. Yes, in Greek letters. Yep. And then the lower coin, the profile's head is facing the right, and it's wavy, slightly long hair, short on the fringe and then longer on the back, so it goes kind of on a diagonal from the forehead to the back of the head, tied together with a diadem. So we're still doing that. Very Hellenistic of him. Mm -hmm. And longish beard that looks like it's made of feathers, but I assume that's just, you know, artistic freedom. <laughs> that's true. Like we it. recognize the same nose. It's a slightly hooked nose, which I like. Just has a lot of personality and the big eyes. And on the flip side of that coin, there's nude drawing of like a male person. It's Heracles. Right. He has a club which identifies. Okay, because I was like, it's holding some kind of weapon, but I couldn't tell what it is. So yeah. yeah, kind of like a nude representation of Heracles. And there's a bunch of letters in Greek that I'm yeah. sure say something important. Yeah, it says King of Kings, Arsaki's friend of the Greeks. Oh, fun. Yeah. So we love we a go. king that is like known as a friend of insert populace here. <laughs> Yay! Not murderer of this type of people. He is friends to yeah. them. He is nice. Cool. So very good. What is your verdict for face of faces? What do you think of this? Oh, I man's love this appearance. I love that we have two different. Good. I like so much versions. I love that it also showcases. How he adapted to different cultures. I love that we have two different times of his life. I love that they're contemporary mm -hmm. to when he was alive. Yeah. I love this very much. I think I might go for a 10 or a 9 at least. They also have so I'm much thinking, detail. I, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go for a 10. Yeah, I like it because there's the whole morphing from one type into the other. One's more Parthian, one's more Hellenistic. It's still the same guy, so you can see his evolution. I like it. And the coins just are very nice coins, so why not? So I'm going to go for a 10. Yeah, I'll go you, for a 10 as well. You're sticking with a 10 as well? Yeah. Nice. Deserved 10. So with a 10 and a 10, we get a 5 out of 5 for Face of Faces. So congratulations, our best possible score. Next category is lengthiness. How long do you think this man reigned? And by this, just to tell you what I'm counting is... How long is the period between him taking over Persia right. and him dying? It's the tail end of his well, life. We had the he whole thing for a of like time. taking care of the east and taking care of the west and 
marrying Demetrius to his daughter. <laughs> yes. I'm going to go on the upper end and say like 15 years. Well, because he, he died at a pretty old age. So, yeah. Yeah, I'll say 15 years. I think that's way too much, but. It is way too much. So he became king in 165 and died in 132, giving okay. him 33 years of reign overall. Okay. But he took control of Persia in 138 and died okay. in 132. So that gives him only six, six. years for yeah. our counting, which is a shame because he had a <sighs> good, strong 30-year reign. But yeah, that's eh, fair. Not over Persia, sorry. So in total, that gives us a 0.6 out of 5 for lengthiness. And here we come to the final score, Sergio. Because our boy Mithridates has gotten a total of 44.6 out of 100, which places him between Antiochus I and Xerxes I. That's fair. Mithridates I, just, you know, in there. <laughs> yeah, you know, just casually sticking in there, which I think is good. He's between two good kings ruling the beginning of a good empire. So I think everything's in order. The problem with Mithridates, I think, is that there is sort of a bit of a, a lack of scandal and drama yeah. that maybe others had a bit more of. I this think he podcast... suffers from the Cyrus problem. Yes, this podcast is not meant for good people, I guess. <laughs> no, it's meant for horrible, effective people. Well, no, it's... Like yeah, Darius the Great. Darius. I was going to say, Darius was the perfect example on how to get the highest score on this podcast. Because he still did a lot of good things for the Empire, but like... He was so shady and so, like, unhinged sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's a good story, good character. Complex. Terrible person, super effective, love him. Done. Yeah. But that leads us to our final question, which is to ask, is Mithridates I successful enough, benevolent enough, foundational enough to be called a Shahanshah? Or is he just going to be a Shahanshah? Yes. Yes, he is a Shahanshah. I, he is the king of kings. I like him. I love this episode. <laughs> I like his way to go about things. It's very Cyrus of him. And I would like to give him the title. See, before Stop. the episode, no, I was sort no, of... No comparing him <laughs> to future kings. That's not fair. No, no, no. Not comparing him to future kings. Comparing him to past kings. My main thing that I was sort of on the fence about it is that... He is very cool. I like him, but I don't feel like I know him personally as much as somebody like, you know, Darius the Great, Antiochus the Fourth, something yeah, like that. Yeah, well, that, that just has but... to do with the sources. And also, yeah, I uh... will remember him just because it's like the start of a new dynasty that is apparently going to be there for a while. The Parthians just taking over the east part of the empire and like also just how good it was to the people who were already in the empire and becoming a powerful contestant i guess again kind of like what you mentioned before with media and the median empire come on yeah i mean i agree with you of course with that because he's a good king can we have a good king please like someone who's <laughs> not just awful as a person he was so competent, his brother was like, you should be the successor to the throne. Yeah, so I think we can agree there's no need to go too far into it, but Mithridates, congratulations. You are a Shah and Shah. You can head off into the Paradise Gardens 
and meet your fellow Empire founders, Seleucus Nicator, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Cyaxares, Darius the Great. Yeah. And your predecessor in this position, Antiochus IV, and tell him, Hey, look, I'm back. Your empire's gone. Mine's in its place. Hey, hey. But, you know, people are still mostly doing what they did, so. Yeah, that was pretty good. Not too bad. Okay. So, there we go. Another Shah and Shah. First one in a while. Yay. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you enjoyed the introduction to the Parthians. We'll be with the Parthians for many, many episodes. So, get Indeed. comfortable. I hope you enjoy the vibe. <laughs> and, yeah, if you've enjoyed this and you want to let other people know, hey, look, the Parthians are coming. It's going to be cool. Tell your friends that we exist. Leave us a review if you like. We appreciate them always. And, hey, it's nice to know things are going. And uh, yeah, so I'd say without too much further ado, you can join us next time with Fratis II, see how the Empire continues after this strong start. And in the meantime, I hope you have a nice week, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.